It goes without saying that you don't know how good something really is until you see it. And then when you see it, often you can't unsee it. It's that good. I often wish that there's certain TV shows and Netflix shows that I wish that I could watch from the start again for the first time and get caught up in the wonder and the anticipation of it all for the first time all over again. On another note, um, on Facebook recently, I saw um, the story of a chimpanzee, um, 28 years old, and sadly, she'd been locked up in a research facility for most of her life, 28 years. And she was rescued, and she was released for, for various reasons. She couldn't go back into the wild. And so um, she was released into this chimp sanctuary. And there's a video of her, maybe you've seen it, where she's lit outside for the first time in her life, outside. And she looks up. And she looks up at this vast, blue, bright, beautiful expanse that she's never seen or never could have imagined before. Can you imagine seeing the sky for the first time? We've been doing this little series, looking at 11 different people who have encountered Jesus. And we're taking these from the Gospel of John. And if you've been reading the Gospel of John along with us, you'll see that seeing and believing and the idea of sort of light and dark are big themes that come up in John's Gospel. And we've seen that already with the likes of Nicodemus, if you remember that, a few weeks ago. And the idea of light is one of the most helpful but fundamental pictures that we receive of Jesus, of Jesus' heart for sinners and the work that he would come to do. Light. Jesus makes all these big statements all throughout John's Gospel. And we come across one here where Jesus boldly identifies as being the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. Jesus actually makes this claim twice in John's Gospel. He says it once in chapter 8. We didn't read that. Where he says, I am the light of the world. And what plays out is like when you turn over a stone and there's bugs underneath. And they see the light and so they scatter for shelter. Maybe like a, a gremlin or a mogwai being exposed to sunlight, bright light, you know, trying to, trying to hide. What Jesus has been doing is that he's been shining light on the religious leaders and the Jewish people and they are scrambling for the darkness like the bugs under the slab. John writes in chapter 3, almost towards the start of the gospel, he writes, Light has come. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But in John chapter 9, as we've just read, Jesus again makes this claim, I am the light of the world. And Jesus is, and he's going to be, the light-giving, life-giving light of the world. And very literally, in chapter 9, as we've just read, thanks Vicky, we are introduced to a man who was born blind. For the sake of my headings, he's going to be a man missing his sight. Go to the next slide, please. There we go. He's the man missing his sight. It'll make sense. Read with me back in the text. Verse 1, it says, As he went along, that's Jesus, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. 
And not only is this man blind, he's also a beggar, we find out later on in verse 8. And sadly, this was the unfortunate situation that many people with this condition found themselves in back in this time, back in the first century. They struggled to find jobs and many of them were cast out by their friends and family because their condition was seen as a sort of embarrassment. For precisely the reason that the disciples asked the question they do in verse 2. It says, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The man missing his sight. And what we see next in their very question is the disciples missing the man. And the question they ask probably makes you perk your ears up a bit, doesn't it? It's the age-old question. What has he done to deserve this? Is it karma? Is this his comeuppance or his parents' comeuppance? Let's take another slant on it, one that might be more familiar. Why do bad things happen to good people? And in this day and age that we're reading, there was all sorts of unhelpful teachings flying around at that time, many of which are just pastorally insensitive and largely untrue. And Jesus both addresses this question and at the same time absolutely shuts it down. Do you want to know the logistics of why, of, sorry, or rather how he ended up like this? It wasn't because of his parents or because of him, but Jesus says, let me tell you why. I'm not going to tell you how, let me tell you why, let me tell you the purpose. Jesus says in verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. But there's also a tone of rebuke in his response. I don't know if you noticed it. Let's read on. Verse 4, Jesus says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Did you spot it? We must do the work of him who sent me. We must do the work. Let me explain. These guys, his disciples, Jesus' friends, were just going to walk right by this guy. And then once Jesus stopped and noticed them, what comes out of their mouths is essentially, oh, what a shame. Did he sin or did his parents sin that he ended up like this? The insensitivity. Let's talk about him rather than doing something. You know, let's do theology rather than actually doing theology, outworking their theology. And how easy that should be for them when they're standing there with God the Son himself. They've already seen him do miraculous signs and change people's life. They know he can do it. They've already heard him say, I am the light of the world. Jesus draws their attention to that again. Verse 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world, he says. And Jesus is going to be the light of the world for this man. But let's just pause here. I think we can apply this. I love a good theological puzzle, right? 
But Christian, if you have Jesus, and you do, if you stand there with Jesus, don't get lost in the mess of trying to solve theological puzzles over doing, over actually doing the work of ministry that Jesus has called us to. Yeah, theology is important. Don't get me wrong. I love it. But there's a time and a place, isn't there? There are real people. We should keep this in mind as we're doing the Rotherham show next week. There are real people with real needs, real spiritual needs that we are called to serve. Let's show them the light of the world that we have in Jesus. Show them Jesus and allow the gospel to do its work. And so there's also a note for us all in that. The man missing his sight. The disciples missing the man. Here's the warning for us. Don't miss the miracle. Verse 6. After saying this, Jesus spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. I can see you. What? Why? I don't know. I've read loads of books about it. People don't know. But John has clearly remembered this to have written it here. I'm speculating. Again, theologically puzzles. I, I don't know, maybe this is. I wonder if the sort of Jesus spitting into the dust, into the mud, and putting it on the man's eyes, sort of echoes the fact that humans are made from dust. Back in Genesis 1, we read that, don't we? And so Jesus putting the mud on the man's eyes, the dust on the man's eyes, sort of symbolises a moment of recreation. I don't know, I'm speculating. Theological puzzles, don't get confused. (laughs) But let's think about the spit. That's the question you all want to know. The saliva. It's grim. And whenever we talk about this story... You talk about, oh, that time Jesus healed the man born blind. We don't say that. We say, that time Jesus spat on the ground, didn't we? (laughs) Friends, the shocking thing here isn't the fact that Jesus spits and wipes it on the guy's face. As shocking as that is. The shocking thing here is the fact that Jesus made a blind man see. Don't get distracted. Don't miss the miracle. Verse 7, Jesus tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. That's all he says. Note what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, as he's wiping it on his face, right, go and wash this off, and then you're going to be able to see after that. Jesus doesn't tell him. He just says, go and wash. That's all he says. And of course, the man is going to go and wash because he's just had mud wiped on his face. But the pool thing is quite interesting. Don't want to get too distracted in that. This pool that he sends them to is a pool that is a pool that people would go to to cleanse themselves before heading up to the temple to worship. Side note: in the last like fifteen years or so, people have actually discovered this pool and the steps leading up to the temple in Jerusalem in the old city. It's amazing. I'd, I'd love to go. Hint. But you'll notice in verse 7 that John tells us that Siloam means sent. 
And so if you look at this very literally, right? Jesus, the sent one from God, sends the blind man to wash in this pool called sent. Thus, the man becoming the one sent. Do you think Jesus is trying to make a point here? Long story short, this pool has nothing to do with the man seeing. The power to heal doesn't come from the pool. The power to heal doesn't come from the mud or even Jesus' magical spit. The water's not holy water. We don't believe in that. Jesus doesn't, sorry, the man doesn't encounter the pool. This man sees because he encounters Jesus. He encounters the light of the world sent from God. And Jesus doesn't just give him physical sight. Oh, he does. But Jesus gives him spiritual sight. Jesus opens the eyes of this man's very heart. And if the whole thing with the spit still shocks you, let me tell you, it only gets weirder. The strange thing here for you may be that Jesus uses spit and wipes it on the guy's face in order that he would go and cleanse. But the even more surprising thing here is that later, Jesus would spill his very blood for this man and for people like him in order to cleanse them. Not mud from their eyes, from our eyes, but sin from our hearts. Jesus figuratively washes us in his own blood. And somehow we come out cleaner. The words that we just sang, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And as a result, we no longer stand condemned before God because of our sin. When Jesus suffers and dies on the cross, he dies for you. He dies for those who encounter him and receive this cleansing, this washing. Jesus later dies for this man so that he could be right with his God, with his maker, with his judge. And the new enlightened life that he experiences in receiving his sight is just this small, small picture of the new light in life that he has been given just by knowing Jesus as his saviour. And an even smaller picture of the day where Jesus will ultimately restore our bodies. But what do we do with all that? What do we do with all this? Let's do some deep application. I've just got two points for you. I'll be brief with the first one and a bit longer with the second one. I'm sorry. Firstly, get this. Encountering Jesus sparks change. This man is so changed by his encounter with Jesus, albeit in a very physical way, that his neighbours notice. Look at verse 8. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, nah, he only looks like him. See, this isn't them looking at him and going... 
Let's call him Frank. Frank, there's something different about you. Have you had a new haircut? You got a new robe, new sandals? No? As you can imagine, this man doesn't walk home sort of feeling about quite shy, maybe with his, his hand on somebody's shoulder to guide him home. I wouldn't be surprised if this man struts home or sort of runs and skips and jumps all the way home. Verse 8, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Nah, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man, it's me. Verse 10, they ask, how, how then were your eyes opened? The man they call Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. It's really interesting here that he doesn't mention the most obvious part of the story. (laughs) Did you notice that? I'm speculating again, but I think this guy, I'm thinking, being blind, he had no idea that Jesus spat on the ground. (laughs) He doesn't mention it, and surely he would. That's what we do when we tell this story. How then were your eyes opened? The man they call Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. And now I can see. This man has been healed to see. He hasn't been given sight so that he might keep walking around with his eyes shut as if though he's still blind. He goes on to live out enjoying this newfound sight and his testimony will always be Jesus did it. Encountering Jesus will spark change. Secondly, change bears witness. Change will bear witness in your life. The change in this man bears witness to his neighbours, to some of those who know him best. There is a notable, almost unbelievable change in this man. And they knew that he hadn't been faking it after all those years for the, for the benefit money, because there wasn't any. Do you know what I love so much about this man's response? He doesn't know what happened. <laughs> He has encountered Jesus, but he doesn't quite see it all yet. He doesn't quite get it. This man probably, he hasn't got a grasp. He hasn't got a solid grasp on the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. This man probably couldn't stand up and give you a lecture or a seminar or write an essay on justification by grace through faith. He doesn't get it. This man hasn't even seen his saviour with his own eyes yet. But he's got enough to say about him, doesn't he? What happened? Jesus happened. The man they call Jesus did a thing. (laughs) Maybe you're familiar with Jesus by name. You've heard a little bit about him. And maybe there's a little spark in you that makes you realise that there is something intriguing about this Jesus guy. There's something good about him. 
You can't quite explain it. You can't quite put it into words. If that's you, that's okay. You have tasted just a little bit of the goodness of God in Jesus. The Bible tells us that we naturally don't want to seek Jesus. We don't want God to be the answer. So if there is that little bit, that's a good thing. Maybe you're a new Christian. Maybe that's you. And maybe you feel like you don't quite get everything yet. You feel a bit different. Maybe you feel massively different. Maybe other people have noticed a difference in you. They've noticed that change. You're not quite sure why, but you, you just know it's got something to do with Jesus. That's good. Hold on to that. There is every chance that you, if you have encountered the Lord Jesus, there will be change. We want, we want to nourish that and help that grow. Maybe you're on the other side of all that, right? Maybe your friends and your family go to church. Maybe a friend has recently become a Christian. Maybe you've noticed some change in them. Something you can't really explain. Maybe you think, ah, they're just going through a phase. They'll come out of it soon. I think my family still think I'm going through my Jesus phase. Either way, you have found yourself here for whatever reason. Maybe you don't even know why you're here. You don't know why you keep coming back. You've been coming for a few weeks, maybe for a few months, maybe for a few years. But you're here. And you're sitting here, you're listening to this. Maybe you're watching online. Where's the camera? <laughs> you're sitting here listening and you're, you're hearing all these songs that we're singing. You're hearing these prayers that we're praying. You're hearing the words of the Bible that we're reading. Have you noticed? It's all about Jesus. We, as a church, are upholding Jesus for you, for everyone in Rotherham, for everyone hopefully, in the world to see. And yet people don't see him. It's sad that people don't even realise that they are spiritually blind. And so they don't even realise that they're missing something so glorious. Maybe you can't see Jesus. But Jesus sees you. He sees you in your need. He is the light of the world and he wants to deal with your darkness. Whatever that is. And he uses all these things, church, friends, family, songs. He uses all that to stand right in front of you and make himself known to you. See, this blind man embodies the condition of every human heart. Spiritually blind. So spiritually blind that we might as well have our eyes shut. He embodies our own spiritual condition. This man couldn't see Jesus for himself. Again, we are not born seeking Jesus. Even as Jesus stands right in front of him, this man couldn't see Jesus. But Jesus sees him. Jesus comes to him. Jesus takes the initiative in healing and saving this man and everyone like him. 
That invitation's open. But for those that do see Jesus, he is the light of the world. And when you see him, let me ask you, do do you reject him? Do you run deeper into the darkness because you don't like what you see? You don't like what Jesus has to say? Or does he shine light into your very soul? Does he give light to your heart? Can you see more clearly? Or does the... Does the darkness of our world look all the more dark and all the more undesirable? This man that we've read about spends his life in darkened isolation, overlooked by his community. He has a life-changing, eye-opening, no pun intended, encounter with Jesus. And as a result goes on to be rejected by his parents, as we read. And he's verbally abused and thrown out by the people that are supposed to be his pastors. And in the end, as it was in the beginning, it's Jesus who seeks him out and receives him. Just skip down to verse 35 with me. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man said. Tell me so that I might believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. This man takes no initiative to come to Jesus. In his spiritual and physical blindness, how could he? But Jesus comes to him to make himself known and changes his life. Friends, let no one leave here saying that they haven't heard this good news about Jesus. Don't miss the miracle. Don't miss the good news. Shall we pray? And think of the people that you want to, you'd love to share the gospel with. Think of the people that we will be yeah, witnessing to in Clifton Park next week. Think of the visitors that walk through our door. Think of your family, your friends. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Lord, we thank you that you took the initiative to come to us in our darkness when our hearts were so far from you. Lord, we thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, you have shone light into many of our hearts and have shown us our need for a saviour. Lord, would you reach out to many, many others, Lord, for your glory. Lord, use us as beacons for Christ. 
Use us next week in Clifton Park. Use the church and its witness here in Rotherham, in Broome, in our neighbourhoods, in our streets, our families, our friends. Lord, allow the change that you have worked in us to be evident in the world around us. Not only that, Lord, give us opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with words. Let us share the good news that Christ died in the place of sinners to make us right with our God and rose again to give us hope. Lord, thank you for the glorious gospel. And help us as a church, publicly and privately, to make much of our Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.